Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12 this evening on page 1004 of the Black Pew Bible. We've been working our way through this uh, letter. Uh, Most recently, we've seen the author prod its recipients uh, um, away from their spiritual immaturity toward maturity. And he's just most recently warned them about apostasy or falling away from their profession of faith in Jesus. Now, he comforts them with the assurance of their salvation. Let me just say this. If you aren't a Christian tonight, and by the way, we're delighted that you're here. We hope that you'll stick around and and think through the good news and ask all the questions you want. But I do want to say this. If you aren't a Christian tonight, the enemy of our souls wants you to be sure that you're going to heaven just as you are. He wants you to be self-confident and secure without any help or hope in Jesus. Because he doesn't want you to believe in Jesus. But if you're a Christian here tonight, the devil wants you to be uncertain and unassured of Jesus' commitment to you. He wants you to be fearful and fretting. He wants you to be doubtful and despairing because he doesn't want you to be confident in Jesus and therefore joyful in God's love or energetic in his service. So our subject tonight is assurance of salvation. Let me invite you to consider that subject from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. We ask that by this word you would revive our souls, enlighten our eyes, give joy to our hearts, glorify Jesus. And so we ask for that blessing in his name. Amen. Well, theologian Thomas Watson was walking behind a father and a son. The father picked up his son, hugged him, and said, I love you, son. And the son replied while in his arms, I love you too. Now, was the son at that moment in his dad's arms any legally more his son? Well, no. Was he any more his son experientially arguably yes it's the difference between being a son and being convinced of it and reassured 
of it. And so it is with salvation and assurance of salvation. It's one thing to be, as the Bible describes it, saved. It's another thing to be certain that you are and that you always will be saved. Assurance is about that confidence. And so I want you to think about this passage tonight because he's building their confidence and he wants to build ours. And I want you to think about it in three parts. First, your full assurance of salvation is possible. I just want you to see the language there. Secondly, it should be both a pastoral and personal priority to be assured. And thirdly, having this assurance produces perseverance. It's productive. It's possible. It's a priority. And it produces perseverance. The first thing I want you to see, and you'll see the the, the language of it actually in verse 11, where he mentions having the full assurance or the fullness of hope, the full assurance of hope. Your full assurance of salvation is possible. And we live in a world in which Christians have been given hope out of their hopelessness. And many of our neighbors feel hopeless. Many feel there is no hope in the world. But Christianity is nothing if it is not hopeful. And we want to talk about that hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Sorry about that. Hope isn't like saying, I hope it snows this winter. And I really do. But I have absolutely no idea if it will. Might. But hope in the Bible is certain about the future and eagerly anticipating it, eager for it. It's more like knowing your spouse or your parents or some friend bought you a Christmas present and you know it because you've been told about it. You've seen pictures of it. They asked you what color you wanted. You saw the expense account charged to your credit card and now you see it wrapped under the tree. You're just waiting until Christmas to open it. But it's all there. And it takes patience, but it's yours. And it'll soon be unwrapped in your hands. That's the hope of salvation. The credit card's charge is not to your account. Don't misunderstand the illustration. But that's the hope, of, that's the hope we have. Pardon now and the promise of eternal life with God and glory. The, the, the well springing up, you, up inside you, Jesus said, would be a well of water springing up to eternal life. And he is that source. So why then here speak of the fullness of hope? Why did we get to this place? Well, he doesn't want to leave his hearers anxious. And he doesn't want them to feel unstable. Because he knows that's the tendency of believers. Frankly, it's the tendency of most people. To feel insecure about themselves, insecure about how others or even God feel about them. I was reading a story about Abraham Lincoln, and apparently when he died, uh, this is true, the Library of Congress says so, they discovered in his pockets two pairs of spectacles and a a lens polisher, a pocket knife, a watch fob, that's the like an attachment to the watch, uh, a linen handkerchief, a brown leather wallet containing a $5 Confederate note, probably a souvenir, 
and nine newspaper clippings. The clippings were all from papers printed immediately before his death and containing complimentary remarks about him. Says the Library of Congress's Rare Books and Special Collections Division Chief, quote, they were less proof of a president's ego than of a man who needed reassurance. Well, as it is generally, so it is with Christians. We tend to feel insecure in our relationship with others and in our relationship with God. And we need reassurance from him that he does and will always love and accept us. You know, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon sometimes doubted his own salvation. And he says, I I feel like a waiter at a table feeding thousands but not tasting it myself. I think Christians go through experiences like that. It's not surprising for Christians to experience times like that. I mean, after all, the the enemy of our soul does accuse us. Our, Our own conscience at times condemns us. We give in to temptation. We stumble and we wonder, is is the Lord hate me now? Is he forever against me now? Our trust in Jesus is weak. We wake up in the morning and there's a sheet of ice over our hearts. There are all kinds of reasons why we we can sinfully feel as uh, like Jesus is as fickle toward us as we know we are fickle toward him. Now he isn't, but we can certainly feel that way. Now, there are various views on the market with regard to assurance of salvation. You'll find some in the, here mainly among the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that confident assurance of salvation is not available to Christians. The best we can have is conjecture. You can, prob- you can be probably persuaded that you are going to, say, to be saved, but you can't be certain of it. Now, when you live under that kind of teaching, you, you do find that many otherwise sincere believers in Jesus nevertheless live in fear and can be easily motivated by guilt. I mean, if I can't know that Jesus freely pardons my sins and certainly takes me home to heaven as a gift, I, I'm, I'm at least open to the suggestion that I need to have besides faith in Jesus Perhaps either my prayers or my penance or the merits of the saints or the martyrs or something else applied to me or added to me for my righteousness. Because what I have is not enough. And I just want to say that once you start adding things to what Jesus did for you, where does that end? There's always the lingering sense that more could be done to be truly right with God. If you go down that path. Now there's another view on the market. And it's the Wesleyan Arminian view. We talked about that view of, of salvation. Uh, from the passage last week. About whether you can fall away or not. And here the view of assurance is tied. To the view that genuine Christians can fall away and be lost. And if it's possible for any true Christian to possibly fall away, then you can't have assurance you will certainly be saved to the end. You may be certain that you are a child of God and bound for glory now, but you cannot be certain of that in the future, for for after all, that could change. You could fall away. 
that can lead people to a kind of dread of what comes next, what will tomorrow bring. But the point of the author of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is sufficient for all your spiritual needs forever. And the Reformed view of these things is that it is possible to be certain that you are a beloved child of God, pardoned for all your sins, bound for heaven through faith in Christ and his finished work on your behalf. And I want to say that's everywhere in the Bible. The Apostle John in 1 John 4 verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I used to think he was saying, I've got to get my love perfect so I won't have any fear. But he's talking about the perfect love of God for me expressed in Christ. And as I understand that perfect love, it drives out my fears. We need to grow in our assurance of that. And you can grow in this After all, John writes in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And he writes in 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to be certain of it. The Apostle Paul in, in, in Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When is there no condemnation? Now. Why? Christ was condemned for us. God would be unjust to both condemn the Lord Jesus for our sins. And then turn around and condemn us for those same sins. You would think any judge in the world was an unjust and wicked judge to hold two people responsible for but one of them sin. So if Christ has died for you, and you are in union with Him, you're free. You're free. And the Holy Spirit is given to you. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 says, In Jesus, you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's, the Spirit is the guarantee. That's a commercial term. It's a business financial transaction term for the deposit or the down payment or in our day for the, for the earnest money you might put down on something you're buying. It obligates you to make further payments. In commerce, if you walk away, you leave the deposit behind. You lose it. God, having granted his spirit, never walks away from the deposit That guarantees your everlasting life. He never walks away from you because his spirit is in you. And so it is that Hebrews 6 verse 11, back to our text, he wants them to have the fullness of hope, the full assurance of it. They don't. He fears that he troubled them. We'll get to that. And they need it. And I simply want to say assurance is possible. Now, secondly, 
This ought to be your pastor's priority and your personal priority too. And here, go back to the text and look at the language here. Uh, Notice, uh, it ought to be the pastor's priority. Having spoken in verses 4 through 8 about those who fall away, having described them, having at verse 8 talked about the end of those who fall away, who bear no fruit. He immediately, at verse 9, comes right back around to assure them that he's not talking about them. To be sure, he's concerned about their spiritual welfare. He addressed it so strongly, they could, they could have misunderstood him. He did, he did say, you are spiritually immature. That's chapter 5, verse 11 and following. He said, you need milk, not solid food. When he spoke of those who fall away, he didn't say you. He spoke in the impersonal, in the third person. And now at verse 9, he comes back to them and says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong or accompany salvation. Notice how tender he is here. He's affectionate. He uses the word beloved It's the only time in the book of Hebrews he uses it, and it's the most affectionate manner of speaking. The term is used in the Bible in two ways. It's used of Jesus when the Father says, He is my beloved Son. And it's used everywhere else for believers in Jesus, who are likewise beloved of God. And he's sure of that about them. He's so encouraging. He contrasts them with those he spoke of in Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Who fell away, and verse 8, their end is destruction. But, but, but by contrast, beloved, we feel sure of better things concerning you. Here's the evidence that verses 4 to 6, the experience of those things, were not saving, not evidences of salvation. John Owen says of the warning about those who fall away, though he had spoken to them, he did not speak it of them. After all, verse 8, those who fall away demonstrate only thorns and thistles. But what had they demonstrated? They had just demonstrated, verse 7, fruit. What does he see when when he remembers them? What did he see? What did he note about them? Notice verse 10. He saw their works. He saw their love. He saw their service. For God, he says, is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. They had a track record of works. In fact, if you were to skip ahead to Hebrews chapter 10... Verses 32 and following, you would hear what their works are. Incredible works. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew by these works they weren't acquiring that better possession. They already had it. It was abiding. So no losses here could change that then and there. So no persecutor now could strip from them what God had given to them. 
And so they had these works. And they loved both God and the people of God. I know the love that you have for His name. It's an important question for you and I tonight. And it's a very simple question if you want to get at, are you a Christian? And the question is simply this, do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Christians are people who love Jesus. Now you might ask some follow-up questions. Here's the first one. Do you love Christ perfectly? I don't love Christ perfectly, and I don't know anybody in this world who does. I will someday, but not now. Do I love Jesus as much as I ought to love Jesus? No, I just said I don't love him perfectly. I ought to love him more than I do, but I don't. But one day I will. Third question, do you love Christ at all? The Christ as he's described in the Bible, not of your own imagination. If you can say, yes, I love him, but not as much as I should, but I genuinely love him. Well, then think about this. Why do you think you're not a Christian? Do people who aren't Christians love Christ? They don't. Do they grieve that they don't love Christ more? No, they're not interested. But people who have become Christians have begun to love Jesus. And we love him because he first loved us and we'd like to love him more than we do. And notice not only had they love for his name, but they had, they had practically and tangibly expressed that love. How in service of the saints, it had manifested itself. They had begun to love the fellow children of God. I'll ask you that question. Do you love fellow believers in Jesus? I don't ask you if you like All fellow believers in Jesus. We just all have personalities that don't click, don't mesh. We have quirks. We have have all kinds of reasons why we may not like each other. We have all kinds of sinful reasons that we have hurt one another. That make it hard to like each other. But but do you you have an interest in the well-being of brothers and sisters in the family of God? Are they on your heart? Do you do anything practically to serve them, to help them? Notice he's here not just thinking about what they had done in the past, but also what they were doing in the presence. They served the saints, he says, he says, as you still do. Now that's a good reminder. What we're interested in pastorally is not, can you tell me that 20 years ago you had some kind of change in your life, but you really can't account for the last decade. What we're interested in is, is there a genuine change in your life and how is it manifesting itself now? Not did you say you believed in Jesus way back when, but do you believe in Jesus now? And is there anything visible that shows that you do? Where there is smoke, we say, there is fire. Where there is fruit, it's because there's life. Life in Christ. And he says, not only do I see that and have seen it, but he says, God sees it too. 
It's a, it's a wonderful statement. It's, a, it's amazing, really. For, he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook. He says, God sees, God knows, and he won't overlook it. Now, pause. Don't read that as saying, your works make you right with God. That's teaching works righteousness. That's not what he's saying. First of all, he's not talking about how you're saved. He's talking about their assurance of their salvation. The point here is that God, having become to us our loving heavenly father, he delights in his children. He accepts our works and even delights in them, not as if they were perfect or could withstand his scrutiny as a strict judge, but he accepts them because he's already accepted us in Christ. We're his children. And like any good father who delights when his children show him their love by coloring pictures, even outside the lines, by writing him notes and leaving them to find, for him to find, or, or by being kind to the other children at home. What delights a father more? These are evidences, he says, of your faith. And so when that father hangs those pictures on the wall or carries those notes in his bag or just thinks of the service of his children in love to one another and a smile lights up his face, he's thinking of his love for them and the expressions of their love for him. And he won't treat them like they don't belong. As if they don't bear the family resemblance, as if they were unfruitful. This is the fruit of true faith. And they, in turn, shouldn't treat him as if their response of love makes them his children, rather than demonstrates that they are his children. Now there's a a wonderful contrast then here. On the one hand, the Bible assures us that in Christ, God forgets every one of our sins. Psalm 130, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's going to say in Hebrews 8, verse 12, in just a moment, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. But though God forgets our sin, he never forgets us. Isaiah 49 verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says to his people. He remembers every act of love we have ever expressed to him. What a grace. And in giving assurance to them, His pastoral priority is that they should have assurance. And for him, he's assured of them because he's seen the fruit of their faith. But then he turns to their assurance of themselves, verse 11. And he says, you need to make this your personal priority. We desire each one of you. To show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
Be earnest, be diligent to have this fullness of assurance, he says. The warning had been, don't fall away from faith in Jesus. Now the encouragement is to seek full salvation or the full assurance of salvation in Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Interestingly, when he speaks of his confidence in their faith, it's based on, I know you, I've seen you, I've seen the fruit. But when he turns to their confidence in themselves, he doesn't hear, invite them to navel gaze at themselves or at their works. But he instead invites them to pay close attention to God, particularly as we move on from verse to 13 to 20, and you'll see this next week. He invites them to consider God, to gaze at God. God's promises, verse 13. God's oath and covenant and faithfulness to that, a God who cannot lie, verse 18. And to the work of Jesus, verse 20. The forerunner in heaven on our behalf. He'll turn to that. That's actually your outline for next week's sermon. If I don't change it by then. But let me just say this. If, if you aren't sure of what we're talking about when we talk about salvation. Or if you're really unsettled about where you stand with the Lord. Or where the Lord stands with you. I would love to visit with you about that. The Bible has so many helps, and it's a much more complicated subject than one passage can get at. But it's possible to have this kind of assurance. Sometimes we aren't the, as a friend says, the best interpreter of our own experience, or the best judge of our own spiritual condition. In fact, some of us are especially hard on ourselves and are just convinced all the time that we're not real, not really Christians. We don't see the fruit of faith in our own lives the way that other people so readily do. And in those times, we can be an encouragement to each other by pointing to what we do see, by pointing, and then also by pointing each other to Jesus. Certainly, that's why he began his assessment with them about their works. And then he's going to continue his assessment as he invites them to self-assess. Do they trust this God who's faithful? And so it's a pastoral priority for all of us. The last thing, and much more briefly, is this. Full assurance of salvation is productive of perseverance in the faith. Why does he want them to have the full assurance? So that they might not be sluggish but so that they might be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he wants them to go on and he wants them to grow. He wants them to persevere. The only healthy way to grow is to be grounded in the love of Christ, persuaded you belong to him, be convinced you are his child whom he loves. You're a new creature in Christ. You've been saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. Be assured of that. And you'll have the kind of hope that produces the energy and the tenacity to hold on. Hope helps you hold on. I've told the story before about the little kid who was in school. He got sick. He went to the hospital. He was dangerously ill. He was missing weeks on end of classes. The school uh, sent him 
a helper from the school to help him study nouns and adverbs. Well, the nurses observing all of this noticed the little boy after the helper, helping teacher left. And the next day, the nurse, when she came back, says, what did you do to that boy? And the teacher, thinking there must, she must have done something wrong, began to apologize. And she said, no, 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 no. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. And everything changed when he came to a simple realization. He expressed it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? Hope. <laughs> they might. Right? So I was just saying, I don't know. But for him, hope gave him the energy to fight for health. The Christian's assurance of hope gives us the energy and the will to persevere. You'll sometimes say, you'll hear people say that, well, this kind of assurance, a reformed understanding of this kind of grace, well, you know what it does? It makes Christians slothful. Sometimes makes them eager to sin. Hey, you know, what does it matter? So it said. And I just want to respond to that. If you think being loved makes you eager to despise the one who has loved you, then maybe you just haven't been loved well at all. Because love invites love. The love of Christ constrains us, the Apostle Paul says. And this certainty that you are loved by Jesus and will be loved by Jesus makes you willing and eager to love him in return. Do you ever see laziness and slothfulness in people who believe this truth? Well, how well do you know me? But when you see laziness and slothfulness among those who believe in assurance of salvation... Blame their remaining corruption. They are not yet made perfect in heaven. Don't blame the doctrine of grace. Blame the weakness of their own assurance of Christ's love. Not their doctrine of the assurance of Christ's love. The Apostle John, 1 John 3 verse 2 says, This is the effect of assurance on you. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him face to face. I mean, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It changes you. Do you have this hope? Then hold on. And let your forefathers in the face is, in the faith is how he ends it. Be an example for you in persevering, like, like Abraham, who didn't get all the things God promised, 
died waiting for the heavenly country. And yet he inherits the promises through faith and patience. May we be likewise because we have hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for your steadfast love and mercy, your covenant kindness. And we pray that we would know the blessing of it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing.